Hello and welcome to Fuds on Film. This is going to be another of our well thought out, tightly scripted, stuff what we done seen podcasts. <laughs> Tonight we have no Craig Eastman, he's either on naval manoeuvres in the Pacific or orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, but we do hope he will be back with us soon. But for now we have more than enough fud to talk nonsense about films, do you? To that end, I am Drew, with me, Mr Scott Morris. Hello there. And let's just dive straight in with the biggest film in cinema at the moment, Scott. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Yes. First, a general purpose disclaimer. Um, I don't know about you, Drew, but I'm solidly bringing my C-minus game to this podcast. So <laughs> if, uh, there will be at some points where I have written some very enthusiastic words about some of the films we'll be talking about, and my voice may not quite reflect that, but I do mean <laughs> it. But yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, the original 2014 film received widespread praise from everyone that wasn't named Drew Tavendale, and... <laughs> While I would, this is true. Yeah. Yes, this is true. I wouldn't put it, which in, is not the same as saying I didn't like it, but I just thought, okay, that film's okay. What yeah. is all the fuss about? Yeah, and I wouldn't put it into the top tier of Marvel films either. But it's solidly in the fifty percent or so of their output that I actually liked. With everything in the Marvel Cinematic Universe heading towards some sort of pan galactic gargle blasting conflict, I'd been hoping that this would provide some more details rather than the skirting around that's received since the end of the first Avengers film and. Instead, even though this film goes to the ends of the universe, it's really an altogether more domestic affair, focused on the mysterious alien that is Peter Starlord Quill, played by one of the interchangeable Hollywood Chrissies, Pine, maybe? <laughs> who can do? You've watched that Chris Pine video as well then, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yes, his father, who turns out to be a planet. So, not a traditional courtship, but who am I to judge? <laughs> Hashtag woke. That's very Greek mythology, isn't it? Yes. People's fathers were generally Zeus in the forms of bulls or swans or <laughs> golden showers. <Yes. laughs> planet fits straight in with that mythology. <laughs> yes. Well, said planet, Ego, uh, appears to us in human form as Kurt Russell, using some of his immense power to get the crew out of a sticky situation after Rocket's kleptomania angers a planet of weird golden people whose name I did not think worth committing to memory or indeed <laughs> looking up. Ego takes Peter, Gamora and Drax off to his homeworld of himself to explain how he came to be and his plans for Peter, which turn out not to be quite as paternal as first presented. And that's a very condensed version of the plot, as an actual recap of what exactly happens to whom amongst the various factions in the film would be exceptionally convoluted and would add next to nothing to your understanding of the film. Can I just ask a quick question? Um, <laughs> because this was always one of my beefs with the original Guardians of the Galaxy, but Gamora's the Green Woman, yes? Yes. Yes, I thought so, because that's... When I watched the first one, like, yeah, this film doesn't really have strong women. It has a green woman and a blue woman, and yes. th- this was all it did. I hope there's a bit more character to this well, one. All the variously coloured women return in this film, so <laughs> yes, the, the blue woman is also there. Yeah, as as plots go, it seems to have been back calculated from a position of wanting to test and explore the bonds of family and friendship between the crew and also their antagonists, and... It does a decent enough job of this, so Guardians of the Galaxy 2 provides a great amount of satisfaction at the emotional level. You'll just have to deal with the shoehorning that's gone on in the script to facilitate that by ignoring the logic centres of your brain for a while. Oh, that's that's generally a problem for me. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I mean, it's a bit trite to say it, but if you like the original, you'll like this, and if you don't, it's not really doing anything to change your mind. I have pretty much the same criticisms as 
the last time we spoke about that film. At a listed two hours and 15 minutes, and even when you take away the standard Marvel credit roll that goes on forever, you know, it's still half an hour too long. But to be fair, it's paced smartly enough that it's more of an issue on reflection than when you're actually watching it, so I guess that all comes out in the wash. We've spoken before of Marvel's problems with danger escalation. Uh, it's rapidly gone from cities being threatened with destruction to the Earth, and then the universe itself. So how much higher can the stakes be raised? And perhaps with that in mind, the actual galaxy-threatening elements of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 seem a little embarrassed to make themselves known, slinking in around the final act and drawing very little attention to themselves. And I am entirely okay with this. would only make me happier if they were taking out entirely, but I guess they wouldn't be guarding the galaxy then. But I am no slave yes, to nomenclature, so... <laughs> yes, their name has given them rather a rod for their own back, hasn't it? <laughs> Unless it is just about chocolate bars. Mmm, salted caramel. <laughs> Gardens of the Galaxy, they, they are just small shopkeepers stopping chocolate bars being stolen by kiddie shoplifters. Yes. <laughs> it's a considerably smaller scale, but I think it might just work. It's a bold reboot. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's useful drama in this film to be mined from the nature-nurture elements of the relationship between Quill, Ego and Yondu, and in what might be a first for a Marvel Studios film, I actually cared about the fate of these characters. A little bit. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> But yeah, like the first, it's big and bold and colourful, packed full of nods to things I largely have no frame of reference for, um, there's enough stupid throwaway gags to keep me entertained, and plaudits must go to Big Dave Blutista, uh, as while on paper it goes to his exceptionally literal no-filter mode of speech much too often as a source of comedy, it actually worked every time, so fair play in that point as well. Um, so, it gets really much the same review as any other Marvel <laughs> film. Uh, they've got the formula, and by this point you ought to know whether it's your thing or not. Uh, this again swings for the quirkier end of the spectrum, which I applaud, but it's still not really taking any huge risks. And I suppose, why should it, while the Marvel logo continues to be a license to print money? So, solid, enjoyable outing, and if this is the sort of thing you like, then you'll sort of like it. <laughs> okay, I guess I... I think you've surmised what I said earlier. I've not seen this yet. And I did want to, because I enjoyed Gardens of the Galaxy enough to want to see, and I have watched the original since. And actually, I think that I may enjoy this more because I have more appreciation for Chris Pratt nowadays. I, yeah. uh, I wasn't really familiar with him when I saw the first one. I'd seen him as the supporting role to Jason Siegel in the five-year engagement. Right. And I think that was more or less it. So when I saw this guy that I basically never heard of getting the lead role in a big Marvel film, I'm like, okay, who are you? And it's not like I I didn't like him in the original, but I don't know, he just didn't do a great deal for me. Left me mm. relatively neutral. But having since seen all of Parks and Recreation and come to really like him, yeah. I think that I'm actually getting more out of the second volume than I did the first. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not. I'm saying he's playing the same character. Either. I just I don't know. Maybe more appreciation for the way he acts means I might mm -hmm. get more out of how he plays that character. Yeah, and I don't know if it'll help or hinder it. He has toned down this quirky humour in this role. It's far more dramatic for him. He's actually holding most of the actual you know, conflict ball for most of it, and mm -hmm. yeah, all the actual funny bits are largely at least sectioned off into the, the supporting cast, Batista and Gamora and Rocket and Yondu and, and oh no, Sylvester Stallone and all that are back into it. So yeah, that's just what we were all streaming out for. Sylvester Stallone. Stallone. Yes. Although, I don't know, sometimes Sylvester Stallone can turn up somewhere and give such a 
well, I don't want to denigrate him, but ridiculous performance that somehow it makes the film better. And I'm thinking particularly now about Spy Kids 3D, <laughs> where he played three different characters. I am all of them ridiculous, gurning fools. But for some reason, that made that film. The rest of it was forgettable tosh. But yeah. Sylvester Stallone playing against himself was really funny for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Certainly worth looking at if you're not entirely bored of the whole Marvel thing by this point. Yes, you you will get some enjoyment out of it, particularly if you could stomach the first film. For the most part, I mean, it's perhaps because they are so glossy and well produced that there's a basic level of competence, at least to all of the Marvel films, that Mm. there haven't been any that have been downright stinkers, which Mm -hmm. is good. And I think the first Captain America film is really boring, but I wouldn't call it like an outright bad film. So. I mean, I think that helps that the level of competence that is said seem to be a struggle for a lot of films. Mm. But yeah, I'll see it. I always was going to. Tell me, Scott, did you stay for the eight hour after credit sequence Gardens of the Galaxy Volume 2 has that has about eight different characters introduced or not? It did. And don't. <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. Thank you. Just, just don't. Those things are a scourge. They are. I mean, I suppose in this one, it's actually a little bit more palatable because they do just sort of occur so frequently it's not like you have to sit through an absolute ream of 3D artists to actually get to it and then just get a disappointing little two second clip of, I don't know, Samuel Jackson showing up and going, huh. Uh, (laughs) But none of them are by themselves are really worth much, but you don't have to wait very long to get to them, so I suppose that might change the calculus a little bit. And the credit sequence at that part is, you know, quite entertainingly animated as well. So I suppose I, I don't regret doing it as the way that I have done for well the 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 few Marvel films at the start that I had them before I wised up and just went and watched them on YouTube later on. Yeah, that's, I basically did that around about the time of X Men: The Last Stand because yeah. they they started a long time ago actually. That's Most true, of them, isn't it? It's yeah. not worth it. Yeah. The big problem is, though, is that that scourge has basically bled over to everything else. So despite the fact that, for instance, the DC Batman films, like the new mm-hmm. ones and Suicide Squad things, I believe none of them have them. Yeah. Everybody expects them, stays in the cinema for them. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get to the end, it's like, oh. And then, then I suspect I'm not the only person who's at least had the momentary thought of, what are you doing not having that? You made yeah. me say, oh, no, wait, no, 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 that wasn't your fault. That was mine and Marvel's. Yeah. So it's a bit of a culture shock when you go back to films from, oh, I guess, like the 20s and 30s, where you know, all the credits are at the start, <laughs> and then you get to the end and it just ends. It's like, wow, yes. what is this new, new universe? I love it. <laughs> that lasted up until the 1970s, really. I mean, look at the yeah, Italian show, which that, is yeah. the end of the 60s, all the credits are at the start. And it's yeah. Like, of course, you couldn't do that now because you would have about 3,000 <laughs> yeah. visual effects artists and it would be half an hour before the film began. Yeah. But yes, it it's nice when they just stopped. <laughs> I mean, occasionally you'll get a, an entertaining final credit sequence. You get something like a, a Wayne's World or a Ferris Bueller's Day Off where kind of the action's continuing in it and it's still yeah. funny. Or something that's like the end of Wally which has sort of an animated story happening with different art styles too, which is quite interesting. Not, not really any reason to stay, particularly, yeah. but that's okay. And it's you're not waiting for the reward. That that yeah. part is the reward itself. But when you're basically sitting through, without any exaggeration, 10 or 15 minutes of white text and black background of just some names that are of no meaning to you and there's no relevance to you reading them, 
hard as that person may well have worked in the film for the audience member is not relevant just to see 30 seconds of a character you've probably never heard of because you don't read all of the comic books obsessively yeah. um, what's the point it's, I just wish they would stop it I'll, I will allow it only if it's a Jackie Chan film and it's, it's him injuring him himself grievously grievously injured <laughs> in the course of duty in fact I think every film should have that regardless of whether or not Jackie Chan's in it <laughs> that would, it was that a Jackie Chan film yes. yeah. it's one of the few things missing from Citizen Kane isn't yes. it yes <laughs> you know Jackie Chan randomly fall, falling out of a helicopter and bouncing off Thorson Wells. At no point after the the mystery of Rosebud is finally solved and the the sleigh gets stuck, um, chucked in the fire, at no point does Jackie Chan break a leg. <laughs> it's uh, People call Orson Wells a genius, but he didn't see that coming, did he? No. You see, it's not a perfect film after all. <laughs> you can always improve it. I would allow a slight variation. I mean, we could have at least had the end of Jaws with the shark grievously injuring itself. <laughs> I feel we're straying from the topic at hand, but I don't really have anything you more think? to say about Galaxy for the Galaxy 2. Um, so I guess we I can... I don't know where you're getting that idea from, Scott. <laughs> I, think I'm, I think I'm out of it. Yes. This is bang on message. <laughs> yes, we're, we're laser focused. Uh, <laughs> so we'll... Let's, let's... Focused by a drunk person, but focused anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Laser focused in entirely the wrong direction. Uh, so that's our ramble about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. What did what did you make of it? So some feedback from the Twitters, Perpetual Dumb Machine at Blake Wrights on Twitter. Good to hear from you again. Guardians 2, it doesn't push the envelope much beyond the first, but it still tastes good and at least the villain's not a placeholder. That is true. Um it is a yes, villain. That who- was a, a big beef I had with the original one was yeah. Lee Pace as Ronan in that first film. It, it was just so awful. Yeah, and dead. It's not an interesting character at all. Yeah, whereas this, uh, it's a, it's a rather more unusual villain, but I certainly felt more involved and invested in how it wound up ending. Uh, so yes, it, it certainly wins on that regard. And Stephen Nelson at Scott's Actor on the Twitters again, and welcome back. Uh, he's biased, but Guardians of the Galaxy Two was cracking in IMAX 3D. Not as funny as the first, but possibly a better film. To quote KG, Rooker is king. Rooker, of course, being Yondu. Um, I think KG is um, Kenny G, the long-running sax irritant. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering who KG was when he I saw that tweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably Kieran Gillen, who's uh, who's the blue woman, if memory serves. Not to minimise her role, but uh, Nebula, is it? I think Nebula. That sounds about right. I really wish it was Kenny G. <laughs> Just because I, I quite like your description of a sax irritant and that could be an opportunity to treat, try that out again at some point. <laughs> when it comes up to the next reboot, we'll, we'll pitch it. <laughs> Only matter of time. So, crashing onwards, let's talk about Neruda, Drew. Yes, Neruda. Chile's Pablo Larraín is one of the best regarded contemporary Latin American filmmakers. Sadly, for all of his reputation, my one and only exposure to his work before this year was enough to sour me completely. I refer here to the bewilderingly pointless and oppressively brown post-mortem from 2011. (laughs) Something Scott has also suffered. (laughs) However, I have been tempted to give the director another opportunity this year. First with the sterile but effective Jackie, and now with Neruda. Larain's second collaboration with one of my favourite actors, Gael Garcia Bernal. As you may have guessed from the title, Neruda is a biopic, well biopic-ish of the legend (laughs) (laughs) more of that later of the legendary Chileno poet and politician Pablo Neruda played by Luis Neco after communism is declared illegal in Chile in 1948 by President Gabriel González Videla long-term Larraín collaborator Alfredo Castro the bourgeois communista must go on the run 
trying to keep one step ahead of Gael Garcia's fictional police chief Oscar Peluchino until he can finally slip over the border into Argentina. The poet leads the policeman on a merry dance throughout Chile, slipping his party-provided bodyguards, recklessly exposing himself and taunting Peluchino with both his proximity and by leaving behind crime novels for the policeman to find. Of course, Peluchino doesn't want to actually catch Neruda. The appearance of a pursuit and the besmirching of his name and reputation is all very well, but the president would have a tricky situation on his hands where the poet apprehended because the imprisonment of a world-renowned artist on the grounds of quick, look over there, <laughs> can lead to all sorts of awkward questions. Fortunately, Peluchino, while not quite Inspector Clouseau, is pretty useless. <laughs> but isn't he just? <laughs> <laughs> and catching Neruda is not something he ever seems in danger of doing. Especially not when, after being absorbed by the poet's work, he has an existential crisis and decides that he only exists as a figment of Neruda's imagination. <laughs> Feel free to swear here, should you wish. I certainly did. Neruda takes a considerably different path from many biopics in that, far from being a celebration of the subject, or a straight-up hagiography, it's really almost more of a hatchet job. Larain seems to have taken this opportunity to examine his homeland's most famous son and declare him a total wazik. I am curious as to how this approach played in Chile. While his leading man is Mexican and can therefore escape most of the backlash, should there be any, Chilenos Larain and Nieco may be in for a difficult time. However, I rather suspect I'm missing something here. Now, a greater familiarity with Neruda's life and work than none at all would, I imagine, help immensely. While I have my doubts that I would enjoy it anymore, I do think that a second viewing with greater foreknowledge would be beneficial. As an example, the opening scene, where the Menchu Rhinos and the Chilean Senate are one in the same room, I clocked immediately as a nod to the surrealism of Luis Buñuel, whereas the artifice of the rear projection during driving sequences threw me completely, mm. until I learned afterwards that Larain is a big Hitchcock fan, whereupon it clicked. For a film about a Nobel Prize winning poet, there is surprisingly little poetry in the film. One piece, Poema Vente, Puedo Escribir Los Versos Más Triste Esta Noche, Tonight I Can Write the Saddest Lines, is repeated multiple times, which to me, again, seems, and I am putting a notice here that I may have completely misread this, but again, seems like an attack on the poet. His constant return to a much-requested piece in order to please his audience and receive their adulation seems like a bit of a extra piece of character assassination, quite frankly, uh, that the, the filmmaker doesn't seem to have a particularly high regard for Neruda. However, it is yet another recitation of this famous poem that leads to one of the film's few truly emotional scenes, when we are shown the effect of both poetry and port on a club singer. But, and at the risk of disappearing up my own bum, I have the feeling that Neruda's art can be seen in the film's structure much more so than in dialogue. As to the dialogue, it's interesting and at times witty. Neruda also looks remarkable. Director of photography Sergio Armstrong has created a very appealing look which verges on being painterly at times. The sequences in Valparaiso come particularly to mind. While it would be pretty easy to dismiss this as pretentious twaddle, I actually find myself reasonably well entertained despite my lack of understanding and my surprise that the film's subject was such a prat. Far less of that is due to Garcia Bernal than I expected. He's engaging and brilliant as usual, but it's not his best performance, and, while it fits with the film noir elements of the piece, his voiceover, always one of my least favourite storytelling mechanisms, is largely unwelcome. Rather, it is Luis Nieco as the titular poet, 
for all of the character shortcomings who commanded my attention, and his recitation of the poem I mentioned earlier is hypnotic. I have read it several times since, and I can now only read it in the same way he delivered it. Also importantly, it's not post-mortem. <laughs> Though obviously, this film could benefit from an incredibly long and deliberate barrier-building sequence. <laughs> as indeed, all films could. But would I recommend anyone watch it? Good question. Can I get back to you on that? <laughs> At least that is, unless you'll accept, hmm, as an answer. <laughs> It did, however, encourage me to read some of Neruda's work, and for that I was immediately grateful, even if it did emotionally ruin me, and perhaps that alone is enough of a recommendation. So we've found the two things that most films need to improve themselves. It's Jackie Chan, outtakes of him getting brutally injured, perhaps while building a barricade. Uh, that would be the absolute um, zenith, wouldn't it, Scott? <laughs> yes. I knew absolutely nothing about Naruda going into this, uh, apart from it was well regarded generally, as I, as I gather. And I really don't know all that much about Naruda. And to be honest, I don't really know all that much about Chile. Right? And <laughs> for 15 minutes, I was pretty much baffled by what was going on here. And I didn't really understand what was going on. And it, it, then it suddenly dawned on me, it's like, ah, you're a clever film. And that can go one of two ways. It can either go become very, very bad or very, very good. And I'm surprised that we sort of have a different experience of this because you normally don't, but I absolutely loved Neruda. Now, I'm not claiming I can make a lot of sense of it, but it has a sort of hypnotic poem-like quality where you know it's, it's the kind of the structure and repetition of it and the, the kind of strange mm -hmm. artifice and the way that it looks and the way that it almost looks like it's been entirely done as an Instagram filter. There's lots of just nice things in here. I think it, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, if you Even if you don't really know the exact references that are going on, you'll probably get enough of it just from your general film knowledge and just mm, kind of that, see where they're, they're coming from with all of these things. And so, uh, That Hitchcock thing I mentioned, I kind of felt a bit stupid after I realised. It was like, yeah. Because I was more like, that rear projection, is that, is it meant to be a nod to the era? Mm. Or is it about the artifice, which is what I think in the end it is? Yeah. Or is it, is it just, was it a budget thing? Did they have to reshoot that and that they, they couldn't yeah. refilm the actual drive scenes? Because it's not there in all of them. And, I, yeah. and it was driving me crazy. And I read the Hitchcock thing and then, I, then that sort of clicked too. But then I thought, yeah, but maybe I should have recognised that when I was watching it. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, so I kind of felt a bit silly, but. Sorry, please carry on though. You know, I don't really have a lot of particularly good words to explain why I like this so much. Uh, because, yeah, it, it does a lot of things that on paper I would have had the experience that you had, uh, which was to be either slightly irritated or nonplussed by them. Uh, but I, it just seemed to work for me. I think mainly it is because of that central performance um, and that can carry a lot of weight. Um, it's it's almost like I appreciate it on the level of a really good David Lynch film where it doesn't really need to make sense. It just needs to hit the proper emotional beats and drive through with enough force that you can get over the fact that it's just weird. And that's the closest thing I can think of to kind of explain why I liked it. It's just quite cleverly done. It's all very arch and it treats you as though you have some level of intelligence, which I like for a, for a change. Uh, yeah, when I was watching, I did enjoy it. But I really, I didn't know whether I could recommend it to other people. Mm. But yeah, I couldn't, I'm not sure at the time I could say why, and I wasn't sure how much I was enjoying it, but I was enjoying it. I've basically not stopped thinking about it in the weeks since I've seen it. Yeah. And, and even today, when I was writing the notes to prepare for this, I'm thinking, oh, that was actually really good. <laughs> um, this is why I, I do want to give it another watch, but yes, and you're spawned to, like you're saying, ah, you're a clever film because clearly Pablo Larraín is a very intelligent person. Yeah. But again, that can go one of two ways. It can be really sort of supercilious and pretentious. 
or it can just be either I don't have the knowledge or I don't have the intelligence to fully appreciate this. Um, yeah. And I'm certainly hoping it's the the knowledge thing because that I can learn and then apply that <laughs> to the intelligence I have and appreciate it better. But yes, it's 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 definitely not for everybody though because it doesn't have a sort of traditional narrative. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what I'm to say other than yes, um, I've interrupted you again because apparently that's my job here. And I'll just repeat or if it- or not repeat if I didn't say it already. I'll fix that in post. Um, th- this is the best film I've seen this year. Watch it. I don't. It, it's definitely not for everyone. I'm going to recommend that everyone watch it because it's only, it's only two hours. Come on, you 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 either won't like it or you'll think it's the best film you've seen all year. So go on, try it. It's good. If, yeah. if you care enough about films to listen to a podcast about people talking about films, you're probably going to like this. You're probably the target audience for it. So yes, go and watch it. It's good. Yeah, really good. Don't say though the. Honestly, now that I think about this more, I also think that I wasn't giving this film the attention that it deserves. Um, mm-hmm. Again, not because I wasn't enjoying it, but because at the same time, well, there were two kind of concurrent problems. One was that the subtitles I have for this read better than Google Translated subtitles, but not by much. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't know if you had the same problem, but I could hear what they were saying because I've been um, last couple of years learning Spanish. Mm-hmm. So I'm listening to them and then I'm trying to like r- fix the subtitles at the same time in my head <laughs> because like the problem is in Spanish, the pronoun for his and her is the same and also for like you formally and for also another person over there, it's Sue. And like they were always, like, almost every time those were used wrong. So I'm finding myself, I'm correcting this to try and make it make sense <laughs> while listening. And I'm also trying to practice Spanish. So I'm trying to not rely on the subtitles and see if I can hear what these people are saying. And it turns out Chilenos don't pronounce like 50% of the S's in their words. And I, <laughs> that, that's really infuriating. Speak Spanish properly <laughs> so I can understand you. Yes. Most of the time by context, I know what they're saying. Therefore, I know they're dropping the S. Mm-hmm. And some people in Spain do the same actually too. But when I wasn't sure and it's thrown me and I'm like, and I know the subtitles aren't always right. So, <laughs> so um, part of the problem I think is that maybe a third of my attention was on something that wasn't to do with the content of the film. But that is it. Certainly I would... I would want to watch it again. I really, when I was writing the notes for this, I was thinking, I realised I liked it a lot more than I thought I did at first. Hmm. Again, sometimes, you know, films just take a, a wee bit of time to settle in. Yeah. And uh, if nothing else, really, it's, it encouraged me to start reading some of Pablo Neruda's poetry. And it's pretty powerful stuff. <laughs> yes, but I do, I need, do need to find a recording of Pablo Neruda reading that um, poem, the... Puedo escribir los versos más tristes esta noche because I want to know if he did read it like that because if he read it like that, it's how it's meant to be read, but it's coloured everything. Yeah, it's a bit too sullen's not the word, but it's a bit too downbeat to be sing sung. But there's that kind of quality to it when Luis Nieco's reciting that thing. It's got a sort of chant like yeah, religiously um, kind of tone to it, isn't it? Yeah, because he's because he's. Puedo escribir los verses más tristes esta noche. It, it's Pensar... like it's a, a mass, kind of Catholic mass. Yeah, it's, all, yeah, it's like a Gregorian like chant or something. Yeah, yeah. It's strange. It's that sort of rhythm. It's like, Pensar que no la tengo, sentir que la he perdido. And it's, it's weird because it's not how you, or certainly not how I'm particularly used to hearing poetry recited. Yeah. But again, if that's how it's done, then I think that it later does play into the structure and that's all coming from the reader. Mm-hmm. So there's just, there's an absolute wealth of stuff in here for people who are considerably more informed about this than I am, I think. <laughs> but it has at least given me the desire to want to be more informed about this. 
Speaking, that's never a bad thing. Speaking of someone with no information whatsoever, I still enjoyed it very much. So <laughs> yes. Um, take, take of that what you will. Yeah, I, I just had all these competing things going on in my yeah. head too, I think. Um, <laughs> Don't turn it into homework. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. yes. If you, maybe you can just like um, enjoy this as a very well-produced, very artful film with great performances and it maybe encourages you to be open to the work of a very famous, very skilled poet. While clearly still being a wazzic, because I think if that is anything true of his personality in that film, he is a pillock. But um, <laughs> I guess he's also a human, which is a large part of that. But yes, don't make the mistake I did of trying to do four different things at once is at the same time as just trying to enjoy a film. <laughs> yes, Scott's right. Don't make it. Don't make it homework. <laughs> Remind me, Scott. I'm going to. I'm going to give it a couple of months, I think. But I'm going to revisit this and relatively soon. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in another intermission podcast we can check back and see if i felt any different on second viewing yeah well look if nothing else i am almost certain i will be talking about this at the end of the year when we talk yeah, about the of the year so we'll have an opportunity myself that yes yeah. i think um <laughs> i honestly i can see it going in there it's certainly the most interesting film i've seen this year yeah i don't know if best yet but it's the most interesting film so and i'm really glad i watched it because when i heard about it actually the fact that gael garcia bernal was in it was enough for me yeah, uh, I really, really like him. Always have since the first time I saw him in E2 Mama Tambien, which was 16 years ago, frighteningly. So that was enough for me to see it, and it was enough for me to overcome my aversion to Pablo Larraín, thanks to Postmortem. But I definitely don't regret watching it. it. Would be the important thing. So I think having just spent the last 10 minutes talking myself out of whether I don't know whether I can recommend it or not, I think I can pretty strongly recommend it. <laughs> So let me just correct that, please. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we'll move on to something very, very different from that. And this time, it's a story originally set in England, but having been moved to Japanese-occupied Korea, as yes. no film has ever done before, I suspect. <laughs> yes, with The Handmaiden, uh, a new Park Chan-wook joint, which is always something we look forward to around these parts, even if the last film of his of unreservedly of joys was 2003. Jesus, old boy. Uh, Ooh, like, that's a long time. Yeah, and it's more recent stuff. Well, I don't think I've ever hated any of them. The likes of Stoker and Thirst fallen a little bit flat for me. I, again, I wouldn't know if I would use the word hate for Stoker, but I'd be pretty close to it. <laughs> Thirst was just a bit dull and disappointing, but Stoker, I... Yeah, I think I pretty much hated Stoker. <laughs> This adaptation, loose it would seem, uh, of the novel Fingersmith, however, has been collecting rave reviews, so is it a return to form or another mild disappointment? It features a young thief named Suk Hee, played by Tae Kim, and is, she's placed into the household of Uncle Kazuki, Jin Wong Jo, as the handmaiden of Hideko, Min Hee Kim. As part of con artist Count Fujiwara, Jungwoo has a plan to seduce Hideko, marry her, and steal her money, Hideko being the heir to a great fortune. This would go against Uncle Kazuki's plan to marry his niece for much the same reasons. Creepy. But who am I to judge? Hashtag woke. Uh, <laughs> we have found today's running joke. Uh, Suki is charged with gently encouraging Hideko to respond to Fujiwara's advances, which she does with all the subtlety of a carelessly lobbed half-brick. All the while, there's an increasing closeness between the two ladies, particularly in the face of her uncle's oppression and insistence on her reading volumes of erotica to a shower of perverts. 
they don't really do anything perverted, but you can tell they're the type. This does seem to lead to a change of heart on Suki's part, but... What you're saying is they do look like Tory MPs. Pretty much, yes. Like and Tory MPs. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this seems to lead to a change of heart on Suki's part, but to say all that much more would stray into spoiler territory, I think. So let's just say that things are not what they seem, and that your alliances can shift if you do not keep up repayments on them. Um, I... <laughs> I've heard this described as an erotica version of Rashomon, which you think about it, it really isn't on any level, uh, but it does give a useful shorthand to the feel of the structure, uh, presuming yes. you've seen Rashomon. If you've not seen yeah, Rashomon, uh, watch Rashomon. <laughs> yes, yeah, if you've not seen Rashomon, yes, remedy that, because Rashomon is one of the greatest films that's ever been made. Yes. <laughs> Secondly, if you have seen Rashomon, you'll know that this film's nothing like Rashomon, so it's a really useless <laughs> comparison. Um, as for the erotica label, well, they're certainly explicit without being pornographic sex scenes, along with some uh, some readings from them, their volumes of erotica, which are about as erotic as the TV guide, but much funnier. So that's <laughs> hardly the main thrust of the film either. Instead, it's a really great character-driven drama with a strong central narrative. It's almost an insult these days to say that a film has twists, given how they're generally handled, but The Handmaiden certainly wends closer to the usual suspect's end of the spectrum rather than, say, M. Night Shyamalan. Um, also, in common with most and Perhaps all, come to think of it, of Chanwook Park's films, it looks incredible. He's always had a great eye for composition, but when mixed in with the period detail of this weirdly architected half-eastern, half-western house in which the film is set, it makes for a real treat for the eyes. Yeah, so for about three days, The Handmaiden was the best film I've seen this year. Uh, <laughs> Neruda pretty much immediately supplanted that, but this is still an immaculately acted, shot and written story that treats its audience with respect and intelligence and gets the highest possible recommendation I can give it. Well, that level of minus um, one Neruda. Anyway, watch yes. both is what I'm trying to get at. Stop being so awkward. Yes. This one is one I have um, no difficulty in recommending immediately. I mm. thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. It certainly looks beautiful, and that was possibly the one positive I could take from Stoker. Stoker looked fabulous. Yeah. Utterly dead and sterile, but beautiful. Yeah. Uh, whereas this, fortunately, is really quite alive. The twists, such as they are, blindsided me, to be honest. Mm. I wasn't, because I, I don't know the novel at all. I knew yeah. nothing about it, other than that it was set in Victorian England. Unfortunately, when one of the twists occurred, and I thought, oh, I didn't see that coming. But then immediately thought, that can't be it because the what the film's called, which kind of took the edge off a bit for me. Because mm. the, the that just makes the name gives that away that, that it can't be all. But and if and I don't think I was ruining it for anybody because you'd surely intelligent enough to have the same thought. Other people out there, that, um, it's called the Handmaiden, so it's probably about a handmaiden. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, really interesting. I mean, I have a. A couple of quibbles, that, which are, one of it's more technical really, and so less about the quality of the film, and that's just that the old makeup on the uncle looked clearly like old makeup, so I think I'm going to see him later, it's a younger person, aren't I? And it's, yeah. <laughs> a, there were a few bits like that that kind of, again, they don't really take off the edge of the film, but they're, they just stand out, so when if anything stops your enjoyment or stops your suspension of disbelief at all, it's always a minor irritation. Really, those are minor, minor quibbles. Otherwise, it's really well acted. It, it looks beautiful. Really, really interesting story. And the only other issue I have, and this is a major one, but there's a there's a final sequence, a final scene in a room that is referred to at some other point in the film. And it just seems so extraneous to me. Mm, yeah. I would have just removed that entire scene at the end with those characters because it, it added nothing to the story and it just seemed, it really just seemed gratuitous. 
And it was like, I had to know sometimes Park Chan Wook sometimes is a bit too fond of his violence, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that, that scene it added nothing to the film and really it took the shine off it for me a little. Yeah. I think I've fairly successfully skirted around giving away <laughs> anything there. There's a scene at the end that I don't like, which is enough to say. Otherwise, yes, it's excellent. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the film. And I... No, I don't know why I've got this questioning tone in my voice. It's, it's excellent. Watch it. <laughs> it's all I want to say. I had too much more to what you've said, Scott. So I agree with it all. Good, good. Good, good. So we'll crash onwards to... Uh, I think it's safe to say rather more disappointing fair. Um, Assassin's Creed, Drew. Ah, uh, movie adaptations of video games. Where would we be without them? Well, artistically considerably better off for a start. <laughs> they really do get a bad rap though, don't they? And that's not fair. Think of all the good ones that balance things out. There's... Hmm. Or that one. Oh, nope. Nope, nope, nope. But at least we can all agree on... Oh, nope, 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 nope. Yeah, they're awful. <laughs> the fact that most of the Persians are decidedly European aside, I actually quite enjoyed Prince of Persia, though I am not at all confident about the idea of revisiting that film lest I be brought abruptly to my senses. Despite this, and despite never having been particularly successful commercially, Hollywood does continue to make them, at least semi-regularly. That makes sense. Video games are a huge industry, grossing far more nowadays than the film industry does itself. And with the narrative of games getting more sophisticated, or at least bigger and longer, which to many is equivalent, there should be greater scope than ever for adapting a popular game to movie. Which brings us to Assassin's Creed, an adaptation of Ubisoft's popular and long-running Sneaky Kill Em Up franchise. 15th century Spain, in Tomás de Torquemada, he of the Inquisition, and the loathsome Knights Templar are in pursuit of a magical MacGuffin called the Apple of Eden. Yes, that Apple of Eden. <laughs> which contains the genetic code for free will, which the Templars would very much like indeed, if you please, so they can put a stop to this whole humans having any choice in their lives malarkey, because it all seems so untidy and disorganised. Between the Templars and their goal stand the Brotherhood of Assassins sworn to protect the magical mystery fruit at all costs, and their newest member Aguilar de Nera. Much fighting and dying happens, but we can assume only Aguilar did a bang-up job of hiding the apple from the Templars because no one sees it again for the next 500 years. Fast forward to the present day, and we meet one Callum Lynch, Michael Fassbender, who bears a remarkable resemblance to de Nera, also Michael Fassbender, about to be executed for murder. After his death, he wakes up to find himself in a mysterious research facility in Madrid where a scientist called Sophia, Marion Cotillard, tells him that he has been saved so that he can enter a machine called the Animus and access his ancestors' memories to help her trace the whereabouts of the apple and so end violence in the world. Naturally, she turns out to be a rotter, and in fact works for the Templars. So Callum must... Sorry, I, I, I fell asleep, um, because <laughs> boy, is that part tedious. Uh, tedium, in fact, is one thing Assassin's Creed has in spades. Character, plot, sense of fun? Not so much. What's the opposite of a spade? That, whatever it is, is how much of this, um, or these, this film has. It's not all bad, though. The cool blue present may offer little to stimulate. Fassbender's loud singing as a shorthand for I'm going crazy because the screenwriters couldn't be bothered to actually write anything is particularly egregious. But the warm, golden 15th century action scenes are at least fast-paced, well-choreographed and reasonably entertaining. The fact that these sequences are in Spanish probably also takes the edge off of how lead in the dialogue actually is for non-native speakers. <laughs> but they're more about the doing, 
jumping off of towers, running across rooftops, scaling walls, stabbing fools than the saying. And that's really just as well. I can say this confidently, having played about 30 minutes of one game, but having listened to about 417 podcasts on them, that, thankfully, we are spared much of the core of the game series. Aguilar only has to find one collectible object, not four or five thousand, and he also seems to know where he's going without having to climb numerous tall buildings beforehand to fill in his map. The biggest problem of Assassin's Creed, of which there are many, is that it's all so serious. Why is nobody having any fun? It's the story of someone using a giant robot Oculus Rift VR rig to experience the memories of a person dead for 500 years in order to find a magic fruit. (laughs) A fruit which, if you think about it, shouldn't exist anyway because didn't Eve eat it? (laughs) And everything is taken so, so seriously that it kills its stone dead. The film is so sorely in need of some, any, levity and not the completely unwarranted earnestness with which everyone involved has approached it. Quite what a cast it contains Michael Fassbender, Marion Cotillard, Michael Kenneth Williams, Charlotte Rampling and Jeremy Irons is doing here, beyond paying for a nice new boat, obviously, (laughs) is beyond me. And poor Brendan Gleeson. The man's a genius at delivering exactly the sort of dry wit that Assassin's Creed is crying out for, and he may as well not be in the film. Director Justin Curzel has um, worked successfully, very successfully in fact, in the past with Cotillard and Fassbender in um, 2015's Macbeth. And he does his best, and the action scenes at least have a vitality that keeps them moving before all life drains out on Return to the Present. But he's hampered by an absolute stinker of a script. If you manage to attract a cast and crew this good, then really you need to serve them better material. And... Going on about 100% of all evidence thus far, that material is best not to have come from a video game. <laughs> uh, to an extent, it's a perfect adaptation of Assassin's Creed, in as <laughs> much as if you're playing it properly, not messing with collectibles, you get these bursts of intense rooftop action, lots of jumping around, lots of stabbing, lots of kinetic movement. It's all really quite enjoyable at that place. And uh-huh. The film has that, I think. Uh, it manages to do that. But just as soon as you get yourself um, all nice and into the groove with that, it goes through in some interminably boring pit in the present with some nonsense about animuses and with some of the dullest characters you can possibly imagine doing the dullest things you can possibly imagine. And it just ruins all momentum and no one cares. I don't think anyone in the universe cares about what's happening in the modern day world of Assassin's Creed. You just want to do the actual fun bits. Why couldn't you just do the fun bits in both the game and in the film? That would have been so much better. I could have I could have easily watched the whole film. I think there's a the action scenes in this are, I think, very well handled. I would love to yep. see an entire film that was just that Assassin's Creed stuff. Uh, the actual, you know, Spanish Inquisition fighting and all that stuff. That that was that was a high point for me. I, I, I enjoyed that. But that's only about a quarter of an hour of a two-hour film, the rest of which is a dirge. <laughs> I said I only played, really I only played about half an hour, maybe an hour of one of the games. I think it was Assassin's Creed 2, but I, mm. I generally have no memory of what it was. And everything else, I'm going with what other people have told me about it. But what mm. I do remember watching this film is that Craig told me once that in one of the Assassin's Creed games, you fight the Pope. And that's <laughs> like, I would have watched that all day long. <laughs> Hand-to-hand combat with the Pope, with the Pope dying, obviously, um, for preference. But I would have watched that all day long. But they could have done with so much more of the action sequences because those were the entertaining parts. And they are so few and far between. Yeah, yeah. 
absolutely. A crying shame. You could if you, if only you'd focused on the actual decent bit of the film, uh, <laughs> the game. Sorry, and made the film out of that. Then yeah, I'd I'd be on board with it. I think there, there's a good film in there waiting to get out. If you could just extend those. What, well, quarter hour, maybe twenty minutes to the whole yeah. feature length thing, but yeah, uh, the, the animus part, the, all the present day stuff, in fact, adds nothing. <laughs> um, and it's, I mean, it'd be bad enough if it were just boring, but it's boring and nonsensical because, <laughs> I, I mean, let, let's say I say the technology part of being able to see your ancestors' memories <laughs> somehow. Right, that's the magic of this film. Right, okay, but it's just that, for instance, when uh, Michael Fassbender is killed by lethal injection wakes up not killed which is convenient doesn't really ever seem to question it much um <laughs> and then marion cotillard's character sophia says to him yeah we're not going to put you in this magical machine um she tells him all these other things and basically callum's response is yeah okay then <laughs> seems legit yeah he doesn't seem to have any questions about anything yeah it doesn't seem curious about the fact that he's more or less in a prison and there were lots and lots of other people in there with him and they quite clearly can't escape. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently he's just swung by the fact that it's a um, an open menu, which is a really, really weird way to say you're allowed to order anything, they'll cook it for you. But, uh, well, I'm going to have a steak then. That's his one bit of rebellion. Uh, <laughs> all of the present day stuff, which unfortunately is most of it, drags so much. Yes. I don't see what the point of this film was. It's not saying anything useful. And if you're going to have a silly nonsensical plot well then you know go whole hog on that don't just have strange futurist or present day bits that appear to go nowhere but take forever to get there mm-hmm. <laughs> or to not get there i guess <laughs> yeah um you can't really describe it as a missed opportunity because i don't think anyone's expecting anything good to come from any film based on a video game by this point we've been burned enough but i wasn't all that bored by it to be to be fair, I guess. No, it's, I it's still, actually. It's still, it still winds up being perhaps the best video game adaptation by default, apart from the ones that are just hilariously dreadful. Um, <laughs> but it's... Are you just as a, um, a presage of what you're going to talk about in a Ruby Ball episode? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, I, I can't recommend it to anyone, but it's just really frustrating that there's the glimpse of something good here and it's buried by all this nonsense. There's the glimpse of something, and, and really, I like you, I, I couldn't say I didn't enjoy it. I mean, for a film that's as long as it was, I didn't find myself as bored as I would typically expect myself to have been. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, maybe it was just the the action sequences were enough to just to pierce that boredom before it fully set in. Um, yeah. But it's definitely not the worst video game adaptation I've ever seen. Um, again, to damn it with very, very faint praise. <laughs> um, and there is something in there that could have been a good film, and it's crazy the cast this film has. Yeah. And yeah. no, it's just, it's ludicrous that a film like this with basically no plot can attract the cast it did, and they're all trying their very, very best. They really are. I mean, okay, it's not the form that, for instance, Fast Vendor showed in Macbeth or anything like that, um, even though he's working with the um, some of the same people, including the director and his, um, the leading lady, but they are trying really hard for something that really doesn't deserve it yeah <laughs> because there is just, there's no substance to any of the dialogue or plot or basically anything yeah <laughs> um and it's still better than 95 percent of all video game adaptations <laughs> oh, i don't know it's i wish they would just stop they don't work and and they don't need to why, why do that i know there are numerous novelizations of the 
the series two, and I suspect every single one of them reads like it was written by Dan Brown. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like it would be on that sort of level. But why? And, and then what happened was the assassin jumped off a thing, and then what happened was the assassin stabbed the man, and then what happened was the man died. He died bigly. <laughs> the famous assassin picked up the red cup. <laughs> uh, I would just wish that was a real line. Kudos <laughs> to Stuart Lee for inventing it, but because um, it's entirely believable. But, yeah. Yeah, I just want to say that please just stop trying to adapt video games. <laughs> we've got films, we've got video games. I like them both very, very much. We don't need to mix them. They're two different things that don't need to be crossed over. They're better left alone in their own. I'm just checking something. I I heard someone making a Pac-Man adaptation. I hope that's wrong. Scott, I noticed on the front page of IMDb yesterday that there's going to be a film called The Emoji Movie. Yes. Um... <laughs> Patrick Stewart is voicing a poop. I really thought that we'd basically scrape the bottom of the barrel with uh, the Angry Birds movie, but it turns out that it's bottoms of the barrel all the way down. <laughs> yes, yes. Just to cap off Assassin's Creed, which is what it deserves, really. Uh, <laughs> Leslie Tavendale, I don't know who that is, do you? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> hello, Leslie, um, at nibbly underscore 81 on Twitter. Uh, watched Assassin's Creed and it was utter rubbish. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. <laughs> Enjoyed the games and was hoping for so much more from the film. Yep, yes, largely the same. same. I've given up hope he's ever been good, but as I say, frustrating that you see elements that could have been good and they fluffed it. (laughs) I mean, yes, I think that we were a bit different from a lot of people and that at least found Warcraft reasonably entertaining. And again, Warcraft Mm. isn't something I know nothing about the games of. But, I mean, that helps, I think, in both cases here that you have a quality director. Yeah. There's Duncan Jones that we are big fans of, and then Justin Curzel here, who certainly from Macbeth seems to be a very, very talented man. So I think if you have, clearly if you've got not just your usual hack, so, you know, not Uwe Ball, that helps a lot. But if you don't give them a decent script to work with, you're just lost. And it's the script that's lacking in most of these, I think. Yeah. I was about to say maybe one day we'll see one, but no, I go back to my earlier statement or request of, please just stop trying. <laughs> I have both devices for playing games and devices for watching films often they're the same device but i i can do the two different things and i don't need them combined yeah. i have both the time and the desire to do both please stop mashing them up all right so we will round out this episode with uh, patterson the other episode in this this episode's catch-up corner yes um and our second <laughs> poetry based film curiously enough um but but scott because i'm leaving all the heavy lifting this film to you because i saw it also at your suggestion, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I honestly have no idea what to say about it. So, <laughs> let's see. Does Patterson live up to Neruda in terms of films based on poets? No! It doesn't. <laughs> I hadn't really paid a lot of attention to Patterson in 2016, but it showed up. I'd heard that it was well, well-liked, generally. Uh, widely acclaimed film from Jim Jarmusch. Jarmusch, will he do the Fandango? Uh, so... <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, so when oh. it showed up on Netflix... You're not sorry. I'm not Don't sorry lie. at all, no. So when it showed up on Netflix, I felt I could give it a go. It follows wannabe poet and bus driver Patterson, played by Adam Driver, going through his routine over a week or so, driving, writing, then going home to his offbeat girlfriend Laura, played by Gullshifter Ferrani, and taking cinema's most hateful dog for a walk, sometimes stopping by the local bar for a drink and to witness the latest drama in his friend's life. Patterson's life itself is largely drama-free, however, and indeed for the 
bulk of the film, it seems like the most traumatic thing that will happen to him is that his bus breaks down, mildly inconveniencing almost ten people for a short <laughs> while. <laughs> it's, the re- it's, the, it's the absolute crisis moment of the film, isn't it? Yes. People seem people seem incredibly distressed that, that, <laughs> that a bus has broken down and maybe it'll explode. Yes. Because <laughs> that, that'll happen. It did not explode. <laughs> No, no fun. Scott, words. spoilers, please. <laughs> uh, the rest of the film largely consists of staring at a dog while Laura tries to turn their apartment monochromatic. Uh, but I don't know why I'm just so tickled by your description of the rest of the films about staring at a dog. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. You can't. I'm not. So yeah, the relationship is strange, uh, but they seem to be happy and supportive of each other's ambitions. So who am I to judge? Hashtag woke. Um, <laughs> I continue to contend that Adam Driver is a computer-generated character and Patterson <laughs> provides little evidence of his alleged humanity. His uncanny valley appearance and his weird blank canvas performance slash subroutine proves to be a real deterrent to absorbing all the dramatic narrative this film hasn't. I do not get this film or the reason for its existence or what on earth it's trying to say. Patterson's most profound poetry is simply a description of his favourite matches and which drawer he keeps them in. After a while, <laughs> after unfortunately, a while. that's not even a joke. That's actually <laughs> what happens in the film. Just... Uh, after a while, I got the message that this was not something I was supposed to be taking seriously. Certainly not as seriously as Patterson himself does. But it's not particularly funny or entertaining or in any way meaningful. So I cannot fathom in which way I am meant to be taking it. I suppose, to an extent, I'm just biased against Jarmusch and his silly hair. The first film of whom I saw was Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, back in my uni days, and despite the title, it did not tell the story of a vengeful basset hound spirit slicing and dicing his way to redemption, and was instead a prettily shot, dramaless outing about a hitman being targeted for death himself. I suppose, then, I should not be surprised that a bus driver driving a bus does not provide much purchase on the cliffs of drama, instead falling into the sea of politely baffled non So that's a word, right? <laughs> it might be, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to accept it for now, not argue with you or not play Scrabble. I concede there is at least something somewhat alluring about Patterson, inasmuch as despite little bar terrible poetry occurring for two hours, I don't entirely hate it. I think its very existence confuses me so much that I forget to be bored by it. (laughs) I I keep seeing these reviews claiming that Jarmusch is a master storyteller, uh, certainly visually, uh, but there's not a story in this film, apart perhaps from a dog eating his homework. A strange little film, and appears to have very little meaning to it, and it's not very entertaining. Aside from that, film of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Patterson is a strange beastie. I had not heard of it at all. Until you said to me, have you seen Patterson? It's really, really weird and strange and terrible and you should watch it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did. And the best thing I can say about it is probably that I don't hate you. (laughs) Which is, I mean, it can't be entirely awful. No, it's actually, it's not the sort of film where it could generate that sort of thing. I'm just largely baffled. I know we seem to say this a lot. Maybe it's because we're getting old and hurtling rapidly towards the grave we don't want our time wasted but it's too long it's off trend of late um, but it's definitely too long completely bewildered about both the point and existence of Patterson they have a strange definition of poetry to work from and I know poetry can come in lots of different forms but at least it's, it's generally meant to have some sort of rhyme scheme or meter or at least some sort of emotional meaning any one of those things maybe all together 
Patterson largely just seems to write statements. Mm. Here are some matches. These are my favourites. That's neither interesting, emotional, um, or has any scansion at all. The, it's not poetry. It's just a basic sentence you wrote about some matches. <laughs> <laughs> when they start like talking about poetry and translation later on too, and you have a poet from another country, a poetry fan from another country coming in, and it's like, there seem to be, are you really talking, like going deep diving into what poetry means? Or are you just pulling our plonker here? You know, <laughs> it is, it's strange. I mean, because first, to break it down, Scott, what happens? Who are the characters? They are some people we learn nothing about them, apart from one person's a bit mad about black and white stuff. <laughs> what happens? There are some people. There we go. Who are the characters? Some people. What happens? There are some people and a dog. Yeah, it's not like this is a universal portrait of working class life or anything like that. It's yeah, it's just it's just a little series of vignettes about someone writing crappy poetry. Yeah, uh, man, it's it's got ninety five percent fresh and rotten tomatoes. Yeah, I am just generally puzzled by the film because it's now the one way you could approach this. You could be really sneering or ironic about the characters, particularly. Patterson say he's this kind of working class guy with delusions of grandeur or thinks he's an artist or something or but it's it doesn't approach it like that and yes his girlfriend's a bit mental but the dreams she has aren't mental or unattainable or any way so it's not saying mm. I don't dream anything it's like I kind of want to sell some cakes you know what if you made some cakes and got people to buy them you could probably do that it's <laughs> th- there's nothing far-fetched there and Patterson himself he's this He's a pretty ordinary, but, you know, fairly decent guy. Mm. He's not rude. He's generally polite. He seems fair to people. He's not got any bad habits or anything. He's, just, he's a regular, decent guy. You'd be quite happy to have as a friend and go for a drink with, I suspect. Right? Because mm. he's not shoving his poetry down anybody's throat either. <laughs> it's largely for him. And then his girlfriend just thinks she likes it. So she's encouraged him to get it out there. And his poetry is mundane at best. But it's not kind of like humorously awful like William Topaz McGonagall <laughs> you know it's not kind of like actively bad so everything about the character and the poetry and the film is entirely unremarkable which really makes me question its existence <laughs> I don't understand the point of Patterson I mean <sighs> do I regret watching it probably not um, because at least it's given us something to talk about because we're like vaguely bewildered as to why it, why it is um, <laughs> I'm just struggling to see why this film exists. I certainly, I would absolutely not recommend watching it, despite the, all of the um, praise it got last year. It's yeah, oh, I, it's almost painful that I can't find anything to say about it other than what, why, yes, how, who why far? is film, yes, <laughs> how why is Patterson, film? why is Patterson, Scott, why is Patterson? <laughs> yes, it is. It is a strange film. Yes, yeah, just just don't, just don't. So that I think that almost brings us to the end of this podcast, Scott. But while it wasn't on our schedule, I think it would be crazy of us not to mention Fire Twister. No oh God, <laughs> <laughs> because I I think maybe I can get it out of my mind if I just like speak about it here. Talk yourself out <laughs> for, the, for, the, for the sake. Oh, I, I'm talking about a sentence here. For the sake of my sanity and for the sake of the sanity for anybody listening to us. Should you somehow stumble onto the Casper Dan Dan the Casper Van Dien section, you know Casper Van Dien, Johnny Rico from Starship Troopers. Yeah, it's the one down, and only time you've ever heard of Casper Van Dien till now. If you um, fall down the Casper hole on Netflix. <laughs> yes. Um 
Yes. <laughs> then the bottom of that hole is Fire Twister. Yes. I actually think it's Amazon Prime, so I just want to know which service to avoid. Um, <laughs> because they did they did seem to have a lot of um, terrible stuff. Um, <laughs> yes. We fell down a hole one evening of uh, being in the same place, wanted to watch something of, deciding that Casper Van Dien's Fire Twister would be a good film to watch. This was a mistake. Don't make the same mistake. <laughs> it's a public service announcement. Don't Fire Twister. <laughs> Fire Twister, in case you don't know it, and I suspect that um, apart from the people in the film, possibly Scott and I are the only people that have ever heard of it, is about an intelligent fire tornado. Uh, yes, it is, isn't it? More or less, yes. Uh, it's about apparently some sort of new smart fuel, which doesn't just mean like a better fuel, it does, in the context of the film, seem to suggest somehow that the fuel is intelligent. Yes, it does. Doesn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and so this smart fire tornado, played in Fire Twister by some really dodgy CGI, uh, yes. goes on a rampage to Los Angeles and seems to some places teleport because, I don't know, they wrote themselves into a hole or something. Uh, and then it ends, unfortunately, not after 30 seconds. <laughs> and really, it's not the hole you want to fall down because then you find yourself thinking, well, I have seen Fire Twister. Maybe it'd be a really good idea to watch Casper Van Dien's Ratpocalypse, where <laughs> where politicians who lie for some reason get turned into giant man-sized rats for lying as politicians. <laughs> yes. And in case you think we have been smoking crack, unfortunately no. But if your life has led you to a place where you can watch Casper Van Dien films or smoke crack, get on that pipe, get on that pipe now. <laughs> <laughs> and here endeth the lesson this has been a public service announcement brought to you by Buds on Film avoid Casper Van Dien films <laughs> yes, um, right so enough nonsense from us for this episode I think we will be back soon with a more tightly themed episode in which we will be looking at aliens specifically the aliens franchise yes not just like yes. you know looking at them or yes. thinking we're rumour from Red Dwarf and thinking that every unexplained thing may be aliens no uh, yes Beginning with 1979's Alien and moving up to... All the way through to Alien's Covenant, which is yes, currently um, bothering your multiplexes. That will be with you soon. Until then, I, as always, have been Drew, <laughs> and I bid you adieu. Fairly well. And he was Scott. <laughs> he doesn't get an outro because he made me watch Casper Van Dien films. You had the remote. You can't back this up with paperwork. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. <laughs>